0: And so Paul writes to them to tell them how sinful they are and to address that sin. He points out specific sin that's going on in their church, specific sin that's taking place. And he tells them to turn from their rotten sin and to obey God and to be holy. So in other words, this rotten banana of the church needed to turn to become a nice, perfect yellow banana. Right? But they couldn't do that on their own. They can't do that on their own. right? Whose help do they need in order to become more holy and more perfect? Whose help do they need? They need Jesus' help to do that. right? They can't do it on their own. They can only do it by turning from their sin and following Jesus faithfully. right? And so by Jesus, by his word and by his Holy Spirit, will grow them and mature them in faith so they can be more holy. They can live more holy before God. So Paul tells them, kind of, kind of, he kind of tells them, not quite in this language, he doesn't talk about rotten bananas, but he kind of tells them that they are like this rotten banana because of their sin. But God chooses to see them like this nice, perfect banana. All right? Isn't that strange? How could God do that? How could he look at, uh, look at that? How can he see this rotten, sin-filled church, and how could he choose to see them as Perfect and holy. Well, it's only because of what Jesus has done, right? Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice of their sin. He was raised to life again. And because they trust in Jesus, they belong to God. And he declares them to be saints, to be holy and perfect and blameless. That's what he calls them, even though there's still that sin that's taking place. And so Paul lets them know that throughout the, the uh, book of 1 Corinthians that we'll, we'll be studying. He addresses that sin that's in their church and yet assures them that they can still be confident that they have salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. You know what? All of us, we're, we're kind of similar to that Corinthian church. Maybe not in exactly the same ways, but we're similar. We have sin in our church and in each of our lives And our sin makes each of us sort of like a a rotten banana. But God is working to change that, right? He brings salvation through faith in Christ, and he works us to be more and more like this nice, perfect banana. He does that through faith in Christ, and he works that in our lives more and more. And so God, even though we have sin, God chooses to see us. Because of Jesus, God chooses to see us as holy and we belong to him. All right, so Pastor Jeremy's going to start a series on the book of 1 Corinthians, so you guys can listen and, and continue learning, okay? Thanks for coming up. You can go back and have a seat. All right, 1 Corinthians, here we go. I uh, said earlier
1: we're beginning a series on 1 Corinthians. It's a long letter, so it will take a long time. I, uh, what I'm gonna, we're going to plan to do is get through the first four chapters, and that should take us through April, And then we'll break and do a short uh, sermon series, I think, on the Sabbath. And then we'll get back to it. So I don't plan on just going right through without breaks. We'll take a few breaks. It'll take us some time to get through this letter. And for those of you who have more ADD tendencies, that'll work for you. Those of you who like to see things finish, they get started. It's probably not going to work for you, Uh, but that's how we're going to plan to do it. So why this book? I said during the time of confession that I wanted to do this letter not only for the content, I mean that's that's a reason, what Paul covers I think we need to hear, but it's even more so for how Paul does it. I want us to learn from Paul's uh, demeanor here. I want us to learn uh, from Paul's manliness here if I can say it like that. I, I think we as Christians, maybe our kind of Christians, will be okay with the content, but if we really think hard about how Paul does it, we might not be so okay with it. Um, we would think Paul's doing something wrong if we would hear the tone of the letter. We, we would think Paul should be nicer. Um, Paul names names. Right, he, he says things that good Christian boys shouldn't say. Um, Paul is courageous in dealing with this sin. But he's also, in the midst of all of these rebukes, giving lots of what one commentator called apostolic assurances. Paul's pastoral methodology is to hit him between the eyes and then reassure him in the gospel. He wants them to hear his stinging slaps while being comforted that they are in Christ. I just think that's how we as Christians need to live. We need to accept being hit hard with the truth in our sin while not losing sight of who we are in Christ. And I think Christians want to hear who we are in Christ and not be okay with being told the truth of what we're like without any kind of window dressing all around it. Uh, And so Paul doesn't mince words. He doesn't ignore what's right in front of his face, right in front of their faces, but he doesn't leave them hopeless either. We'll see that in a moment. So that's what I want us to learn from the book. So I want you to hear the content, of course, but I hope going through this is a lesson in how to do ministry for each other, that's what my hope is. Our text this morning are the first three verses, so let me read that and then we'll pray and then I'll try to explain what those three verses are saying. It's Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to the church of God, hear that, to those sanctified, not being sanctified, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace and peace from God our Father, or grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy word. It is without error. It will not fail. It is powerful to We ask that you would do that here now, that it would change us, that it would rebuke us, and that it would comfort us. And so, God, please work in your people in us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, first three verses, I want to explain that, and then I'll I'll go to more of an overview of the book. Paul wrote this letter, we see, uh, with a brother named Sosthenes. We really don't know anything about Sosthenes. He must have been well-known to the Corinthians. Um, uh, Paul often didn't actually physically write the letter. Somebody else wrote, but in this case, it looks like maybe he's co-writing this with this brother named Sosthenes. Before mentioning Sosthenes, though, Paul reminds uh, the Corinthians and us of who is writing. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, that's all about authority. Right? Paul is claiming, uh, not claiming in the sense of he may or may not be, this is who he is. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and he's simply saying, so listen to what I'm about to write to you. Right, I want your attention. Why? Because God called me, not you, to be the apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm going to write with the authority of God. I, I, you need to listen to this. So we, we need to be reminded of that, right? To, to reject or disobey or ignore what Paul's about to write is to disobey, reject, and ignore what God is saying. That's what we believe about the Bible, right? That's what you believe about the Bible, right? We have our doctrine of inspiration all neat and tidy. God is writing through His apostle. These are God's words. And so for you to ignore it, for you to not heed it, is to ignore or disregard God. And I don't know about you, but that seems like a very unwise thing to do. I wouldn't do that. You'll see later on that as they disregarded God's commands about Lord's Supper, God was putting some of them to death. Like Paul is not playing in this book. And he starts right out at the front. This is a shot across the bow. Paul wants our attention. Paul writes to the church of God that is in Corinth. We'll hear about Corinth in a moment. Uh, and he reminds them of who they are in Christ. They're the church of God. Even though Paul is writing with the authority of God, he doesn't say this is the church of Paul. Paul started this church. It's not the church of Paul. It's the church of God. That's true of us. huh? We have a neat history here, but we aren't the church of a camp. We're not the church of any of the pastors who have pastored here you're definitely not the church of jeremy god help us if you are right not the church of the elders you're not the church of the most wealthy patron of our church which happens so much you're not the church of a woman who wants to drive things here and everybody kneels before her we're the church of god we're his church isn't that good news he's he we are his he is ours he defends us. He watches over us. He supplies us. We're His. Then He says that they are those who are sanctified. This is a way that we usually don't consider the word sanctified. We typically think sanctification as a process, something that they're going through. They're being sanctified. Here, though, Paul says they are sanctified. That is, they're holy. They're God's. They're strange. They're His. They are already in Christ, holy. Pastor Jeff, in the banana illustration, said this well. Even though we are in our sins rotten, we are in Christ justified. We are already sanctified. We are already righteous. Pastor Jeff hit it right too. This church was rotten. Paul spent more time with the Corinthians than any other church, and they were rotten horrible and right at the front though (laughs) in christ this rotten banana is sanctified don't forget that about who you are and then they are saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our lord jesus christ they're saints they are his beloved ones but only those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ the position of a church don't apply this necessarily individually he's not talking to individuals here he's talking corporately together as a church we are saints right as our church is obedient to Jesus as we continue to believe this gospel as we continue to be true to the Lord Jesus Christ, we're we're saints. Of course, that's also true individually in the Scriptures of us. But together, here we are, brothers and sisters. We are gods. We are sanctified. We are holy. We are His saints. So don't, don't neglect to remember that gospel. Don't forget that. What you're a part of here. Don't forget who we are here. And then, as is Paul's habit at the beginning of all of his letters, he prays that grace and peace would be given to them from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have a Father and we have a Lord. You'll notice that the Spirit here isn't explicitly mentioned along with the Father and the Son. Most think that's because the grace and peace that comes from the Father and from Christ is the Spirit. The Spirit is mentioned here. He's the grace and peace that's coming to us as you read and heed this letter. And so why are we here? Why are you here listening to the preaching of God's Word? Because you want grace and peace. Because you want God's Spirit to come as you're paying careful attention to God's Word and give you God's grace. This is God's grace to you. That's what we're doing here. As so you sing God's word, as we pray God's word, as we preach God's word, God is, that's grace coming to you. That's God's peace coming to you. We're very fond of praying for the peace that passes all understanding. This is God's word by His Spirit bringing us the peace that passes all understanding in whatever is going on in your life. And as you face financial problems, you want God's grace and you want God's peace. And here it's coming. As you have relational problems, marriage problems, parenting problems, work problems, you need God's grace and peace. Here it's coming. In the preaching of God's Word, as God's Spirit comes and fills your life with His Word. So this is what we're here for. We need God's grace and peace. Alright, so that's those three verses. This is Paul's introduction. Now, let's just back up a little bit and talk about the city, Corinth, and then a little bit more about the church. Corinth has an interesting history. If um, you remember back to your middle school history, the world power at the time that Paul's writing is Rome. They are dominating the world, the world is basically under Roman rule at this time, but Prior to that, it was under Greek rule. The Greeks were the world power. And Corinth uh, was the hub of Greek power. It was the wealthiest city. Athens was the capital, but all of the wealth and culture and beauty and strength of Greece was in Corinth. When the Romans defeated the Greeks, they leveled Corinth, raised it, burned it. Nothing left but rubble. And then uh, when Julius Caesar became the first Roman Caesar king, emperor, he saw the strategic importance of Corinth and rebuilt it and repopulated it. And almost immediately, it was empty for about 100 years, almost immediately it went back to its former glory. It's a port city. It's a strategic land route, and so all of the wealth came back in, and of course, with all of the wealth came back all of the sin. Corinth uh, was what you and I think of as San Francisco. That's what Corinth's reputation is. In fact, they had a verb to Corinthianize, meant to be a fornicator, right? We, we call people sodomites, right, who want to have sex in sick ways with the same sex because the city of Sodom was known for that. Corinthian was used in the same way. To, to Corinthianize was to fornicate, to be involved in sexual debauchery. Um, and so you'll see a lot in this letter of rebuking for sexual sin because the church had not separated themselves from the crazy sexually immoral culture of Corinth. We, we live in the Northwoods, and there is some sexual perversity here, uh, but we're not maybe like San Francisco. We were in a conference in Bloomington. Bloomington's the second gayest city in the United States. That's not the Northwoods. There's still shame in the Northwoods for gay. That's good shame. There's still shame in the Northwoods for adultery. You have to keep it hidden. You didn't have to keep it hidden in Corinth. You'll see, and we'll get there in a moment, in chapter 5, the church in Corinth was proud for their sexual progressiveness. They were boasting about it. They weren't ashamed of it. We in the Northwoods still have some shame attached to sexual sin, which is a very good thing. It's a very good thing. It's a gift of God. But we live in a culture, don't we, that is no longer ashamed of sexual perversity. No longer ashamed. And so this letter is timely for us because we want to continue to keep the right gift of God of guilt and shame over this kind of perversity because it destroys lives, doesn't it? It wrecks and ruins human beings. It takes them to hell. And so we need to pay attention to this letter because it's really written to a country like ours. It it gets us well. So that's Corinth. A little bit about it. Now the church. If you want to read about the founding of the church in Corinth, read Acts 18. That's where Paul did it. You might remember that Paul was in Macedonia and he had a vision of the Corinthian man, or the Macedonian, sorry, the Macedonian man calling out to him to come. Paul came, and very strange for Paul, he spent a year and a half in Corinth. He hardly ever stayed long in any one place. His job was to go in, his calling was to go in and preach the gospel, to get a church started, and then to move on and hand it off to somebody else. Like just before he went to Corinth was when he was in Athens. Remember when he was in Athens? And he went up to the Areopagus and was debating with all the philosophers and calling them to repentance. He was only in Athens like a a couple days. And then he went down to Corinth, preached the gospel, Uh, the church started, and he remained there for a year and a half to uh, teach and preach. And so there isn't a place that Paul remained longer or was more associated with than Corinth. They had the great benefit of having the Apostle Paul, not for days, but for months. And you would expect then, right, that this church would be the shining diadem in Paul's crown of pastoral ministry. You would think that he'd say, Look at Corinth, I spent a year and a half there. Look at how good and godly they are. <laughs> They are a miserable failure. (laughs) Apostle Paul's church, right? If this is on Paul's resume, nobody's hiring him, right? I pastored in Corinth. How's the church, Paul? Well, uh, (laughs) they got a lot of money. They're, They're really lenient on sinners, they hate each other, they fight about everything. (laughs) Right, <laughs> the rich people look down on the poor people. And eat all the food before they get any. I I, I taught them there. <laughs> right, like nobody's hiring Paul, and it's because of Corinth. This is a wicked church, and their main issue is division. Now, before I say that, I, I missed a part. Uh, this letter is. Like the second letter Paul wrote to Corinth, if you turn to chapter five, verse nine, he he references a previous letter that he wrote to them, and he so he wrote a previous letter rebuking them for their sin, and uh, it was a failure. They didn't listen to him at all. In fact, you'll see throughout this letter and in the Second Corinthians that they have largely dismissed Paul. They're now working against him. They think he's a charlatan. They think he's the liar. This is their father, their pastor, and they have totally rejected him. They think Paul's the trouble. They're maligning him now. So Paul rebukes them in their sin in a a previous letter, and it's a failure. And now he's received other written communication from Corinth informing them that they haven't repented at all. In fact, they're going doubling down on their sin. And then we'll see that Paul has had visitors from the church in Corinth explaining what's still going on there. And this letter is the result of all of that. So Paul knows this church. He knows what's going on. And he doesn't write kindly at all. And so the main issue is division. It's hinted at in verse 2 right away. That's why he says, called to be saints together. The issue here is division. In chapter 1, verse 10, he gets right at it. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you agree that there be no more divisions among you. There isn't anything that the church in Corinth can't fight about. You bring it up, they can divide over it. If you just quickly page through the letter, you'll see that they can divide over uh, leading church personalities. We'll see that I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Peter, and then the real stuck up hoity toity Christians go, no, 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 I follow Jesus. <laughs> They're the worst. <laughs> they divide over Paul's authority. They divide over business disputes. They divide over how to deal with men who are sleeping with their father's wives. They divide over marriage, roles in marriage. They divide over sex in marriage. They divide over what to eat and what not to eat. They divide over wearing head coverings. They divide over the Lord's Supper. They divide over whether or not Jesus is resurrected from the dead. They divide over spiritual gifts. These people... Is a war in the church. This is Paul's church. This is the man who's all about unity's church. This is what's going on here. And so Paul writes to address all of this division. He wants to call it unity. And what's his strategy? What's his pastoral philosophy to deal with this church that's so wicked? Well, he just provides stinging rebuke while preaching the gospel to them. That's it. That's it. There's, there's no twenty steps to healing a fractured church. He doesn't bring in any high-powered church consultants. He just preaches the gospel to them while having them look in a mirror and show them what they're really like. That's what he does. That's it. That's all. Nothing else. No month-long fasting, prayer vigiling. Right? He just preaches the gospel. Well-naming names and sins. That's it. Isn't ministry so simple? It's really simple. All right, so, I just want to simply say, that's how you do church. This letter is written so that we might know how to do pastoral church ministry. That's it. I was together with a group of pastors in our area just a bit ago, and the topic was discipleship pathways. I'm doing scare quotes because I already had a headache thinking about talking about that, that kind of stuff. I don't know. I don't think it's... Anyways, it's flow charts, right? How to get a person from here to here. It's a good discussion. Um, it's, it's needed to be discussed, and, and, and yet it appears to me, it appeared to me as everybody was talking about how their church takes somebody who's immature to maturity and all of the steps and kind of scientific do this and then this and then this and this, and this which you know doesn't happen, right? You grow through relationships when conflict comes, typically. But, you know, none of us to this point, none of them to this point had ever mentioned preaching the gospel and rebuking people for sin. (laughs) None of them. Right. Get him in a new members class, get them in a small group, get them to this class, make sure they do this, da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da. No preaching the gospel firmly, hardly, manly, while rebuking specific sins, both publicly and privately. Not a mention of any kind of dealing with sin. Right? And that's why the church is so pathetic today, isn't it? That's why so, so many churches have so many people in sin who never get loved enough to have said, hey, this. What? Right, because they put them in a discipleship pathway. Right? And, and they go through the pathway, and, and, and they haven't changed from beginning to end. They know a bunch more. You're getting a bunch more work out of them. But they have never dealt with their heart-corrupted, disgusting wickedness at all. Because no pastor, no elder has loved them enough to preach it to them or sit down in a room and tell it to them. Husbands' wives are still being neglected, but the man's gone through the discipleship pathway. (laughs) He's never been addressed in how he treats his wife, personally. I think Paul would have been at our meeting and started laughing out loud at us. Right? Yeah, put my church in Corinth through your discipleship pathway. See how that goes. <laughs> I think he would have shook his head at us. What are you guys doing? You're making this so complicated. I think we as pastors just want to cover our guilt because we're so scared to confront anybody ever. And so we make up discipleship pathways. Because at least it looks like we're doing something. It looks real busy. It looks real important. I have arrows. Paul just preaches the gospel and says, Hey, this guy who's sleeping with his father's wife, get rid of him. (laughs) You'll never see that in a discipleship pathway. So I just think this is church. So what I'd like you to do is read through this letter with that frame. Read through this letter and say, how would Paul do Pine Grove? How would Paul pastor Pine Grove? How would Paul, if I was in one-on-one breakfast meeting with him, how would he pastor me? I I think we would not want to go to breakfast with Paul. Honestly, I wouldn't. Because I know he would know me and I know he would tell me what he sees. I don't like going to breakfast with people like that. Do you? <laughs> we don't want them leading our small group or in our small group. They didn't go to Jim's group.
0: <laughs>
1: and this is how Paul's doing church. And I think... Since, by the will of God, he was called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, we should pay attention. We should pay attention. Now, one other thing here. Why does God ordain that church is done by simply preaching the gospel while dealing specifically with sin? Later on, or in uh, chapter 1, um, Starts in verse 17, Paul says, he didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And then if you continue on in verses 18 to 31, you get this Paul saying, I I just decided I was going to preach Christ crucified and that's it. Uh, pastoral ministry is just preaching the gospel week after week after week of the week, pointing to specific sins and the lives of people, both privately and publicly. And, and why does God do it that way? Why doesn't God do discipleship pathways? Why doesn't God do all the high-powered church consulting stuff? And I, Those things can have a place and they can be helpful. But why is this so seemingly simple? Why does God want you? Or why does God ordain that you grow right here, this? Doesn't this seem so silly and simple and almost foolish? I mean, what's happening here? Why does God want it that way? So that he gets all the glory. Paul's point in chapter 1, verses 18 to 31, is simply this. We come up with all of our plans. We want all of this complicated ministry stuff. Why? Because then I did it. Because I did it. I, I came up with this great discipleship pathway for you. I came up with this awesome 20-point plan that we're going to accomplish together, and I get the glory. Whereas if we're just preaching the gospel while pastoring people courageously, it seems so foolish to the world that we're here together on a Sunday morning doing this seems utterly ridiculous to the world. Because there's no power here, they think. There's no high-powered people here. And God says, yeah, that, that's how I want it. I want to give you simple, seemingly foolish ministry that radically changes lives so that it shows the world how foolish their wisdom is and it shows us how powerful God's folly is. So God gets all the glory. That's why. Because it's the cross that changes you. It's hearing the gospel and believing it that changes you. It's, it's having a brother or a sister love you enough to put the finger on your specific sin and bringing the gospel to bear that changes you. That's it, the gospel. Not me, not our great plans, just the gospel. So that's what Paul does. I was going to give you two examples of this, but I don't think we have enough time. Because I, that was pretty much not the main part of the sermon there. So, um, just turn to chapter five real quick. We'll give give one example. It's the man I've been talking about. Um, There's a man in the church who is having his father's wife. You know what the word "having" means, right? He wasn't having her over for Thanksgiving. He's sleeping with his stepmother. (laughs) He's committing adultery and fornicating with his father's wife. That's gross, isn't it? Oh my gosh, it's disgusting. And the church was proud of how tolerant they were of the man. Right? They're arrogant. They're boasting of how tolerant they are of this man's name. They're, they're thinking, look at Paul. Look how progressive we are in loving and being kind to this man. <laughs> right? And Paul says, uh, you're arrogant. Instead of boasting, you should be mourning. Let the man who has done this be removed. From him. Paul says in verse 1, you're tolerating the kind of stuff that pagans don't even tolerate. You know what a pagan would do to a man sleeping with his father's wife? They'd kill him. They'd ostracize him at the very least, maybe castrate him. And you tolerate it. What does our world love more than anything today? Tolerance. (laughs) What does the church love more than anything today? Tolerance. We call it grace. We do. We say we're being gracious with somebody when we're tolerating their sin. Oh, I'm just being gracious. Parents do this. When you don't spank your child for sin, right? What do you how do you excuse yourself? Oh, I'm just being gracious. <laughs> right? Husbands whose wives are being very belligerent and difficult. I'm just being gracious. No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. Paul writes in Titus 2 that the grace of God is appeared so he might say no to ungodliness, not so that we can tolerate it. And this is what Paul does throughout this entire letter. They should be weeping. They should remove the man so that he might repent. And one of the greatest parts of this, Paul writes this and they listen to him and they excommunicate the guy. They get rid of him. And then Paul writes again in 2 Corinthians, the guy had repented. He had confessed his sin. He quit his behavior. He had totally repented. And the church was still keeping him out. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, hey, hey, bring him back in. (laughs) What are you guys doing? Like, you know, the pendulum swung so far. (laughs) And so they listen. And the guy is saved. Isn't that wonderful? And we're so arrogant in thinking that Paul is wrong, aren't we? We hate, we hate sinners. We don't love them. That's what Paul's going to do throughout this entire letter. Well, let me end with the gospel. So we you saw one example of how bad this church is. Read it, really, read it with some humor, if you will. It is crazy, this church. But look again what Paul says of them in verse 2. Just look it. Look at what Paul calls them. It doesn't make sense, does it? This is a church that is the example for how not to be Christians. They got it all wrong, it looks like. And yet, in verse 2, Paul says, You're the church of God. You're sanctified in Christ. You're saints. What is Paul doing here? He's not softening them up. He's not playing that, you know, that kind of thing you do to people when you got to say something hard, you say something soft to get him to like you a little bit. He's not playing good cop before he brings in the bad cop. He's not a liar. He's just saying what's true of this church. They are wicked and corrupt and full of sin and they are God's and they are justified and they are his saints. And that's the gospel, isn't it? Why? Who did Christ Jesus came to die for? Sinners. While we were yet all got it all together, Christ died, right? While you had repented of all your sin and cleaned up your life, and then Christ died for you, right? While the church had it all together, then Christ died. No. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we are God's. And so we're justified, holy, sanctified. And so we're saints. And this is how somebody changes. When their sin is given no quarter, and the gospel is ringing in their ears. (laughs) Where people love them enough to sit down and say, Hey, you, knock it off and then reminds them that they belong to God, and they are justified, and they are His saint and beloved. That's what changes people. And so the one thing we don't want to be is gospel-only people. Gospel, 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 love, 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 grace, grace, grace. We want to be gospel people, but we also want to be loving enough to rebuke each other. But we don't want to be just cranky rebukers either. There's churches you go to... (laughs) You don't hear much gospel, but you sure do know how bad you are. And, and you want to be both, right? You want to hear how much God loves you and send His Son to die for you and be loved enough to be told how wicked and bad your sin and it needs to be stopped. That's what changes people. So that's what I want us to learn from this. The gospel doesn't wink at sin. It doesn't tolerate it. But it never forgets to remind us of who we are in Christ. Right? We are God's. We are sanctified, and we are saints. Let's pray. So Father in heaven, praise you for this letter. Thank you for giving it to us. God, I pray that you would help us to leave here with this gospel ringing in our ear and with a new, renewed hatred of our own sin a desire for people to love us enough to rebuke us and correct us. And that we would love people enough to do that while giving them the truth of who they are in Christ. So God, would you do this for us, for your glory? That those who are in sin would no longer remain in it, but they would do so because they remember that all of their sins are forgiven. And so God, please give us this grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the charge is... Here's the charge. I'd love you to read through 1 Corinthians at least once this week. Read through 1 Corinthians once this week, if you would. And be willing to look at not just what Paul says, but how he says it. And ask yourself, do I want to be pastored like that? Do I want to be led and loved like that? And then linger a little bit in chapter 15, if you would, in the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The benediction comes from the last, second to last verse of this letter. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you wherever you go this week. Amen.